no earthly good but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need i know my pain will not be wasted christ completes his work in me Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Please be seated. I invite you to return to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, I'm just going to begin reading with verse 9 through verse 13 this morning. Matthew 6, 9 through verse 13. Uh Uh-oh. That's all right. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 9. Hear the words of Jesus teaching his disciples and through them us um, how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from evil. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, Lord, to teach us this morning, to open our hearts to uh, Jesus' words, to in turn open Jesus' words to our hearts. Father, we pray that, um, Lord, you be glorified in this time, that you be glorified by giving us whatever instruction it is that we need, Lord, whether it be a word of comfort or uh, a word of, uh, of teaching or a word of uh, even rebuking, Lord, whatever it is that we need, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would be free to, you would freely give it to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to what I'll call for the purpose of this uh, morning's message, the sixth petition of what the church has historically called uh, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, before we really get started in verse 13, just a couple of words uh, in terms of housekeeping. Uh, Sometimes the Lord's Prayer is parsed into seven petitions. I've mentioned that, I think, in previous messages. At least I believe that I have. And um, when, uh, uh, when some parse the Lord's Prayer into seven petitions, it is verse 13, which is really our primary text this morning. It is in verse 13 uh, that they form uh, the sixth and the seventh uh, petition by dividing uh, verse 13 into two petitions. Now, this isn't... Uh, any kind of uh, a real big deal here. Uh, we certainly wouldn't want to take our toys and go home over this and start another denomination over this issue. Um, it's hardly anything like that. Uh, but I, I want to, um, I do want to show why uh, I see this as six petitions and why uh, many have seen this as six petitions instead of seven. If you look at verse 11, there we have what we've been calling the second table of the Lord's Prayer. What do we mean by that? Well, the first table, just like in the Ten Commandments, the first table concerns our um, position towards God. It's vertical. Um, And the second table uh, pertains to us, uh, if you will, horizontally. Um, And when we come to verse 11, we come to what we call the fourth petition. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. And the first word that we have in verse 12 is the word and. In the Greek, it's the word chi. Some of you probably know that word. Uh, it's one of the first words you learn in the Greek language uh, uh, is the word chi. And um, here, it's a word of addition, isn't it? Um, you have give us this day our daily bread, verse 11, and in addition to, right? In addition to, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then beginning verse 13, we have this word and again. And um, in addition to the previous two, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you take a seven-part division, then most likely you're dividing verse 13 into two. And you would say the sixth petition is lead us not into temptation. And the seventh petition is deliver us. From evil, but I think uh, the you know the word that we have separating those two lines is not the word and it's the word but uh, it's not chi it's another word uh, known as a law and uh, I think what we have here is more like parallelism uh, than an addition of another petition. 
do you follow me? Um, you'll encounter parallelism a lot in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Psalms, and the prophets, if you will, where you have a precept given. And then in one line, you'll have a precept stated. And then in the next line, you'll have that same, uh, that same precept visited again. And, and maybe in some forms of parallelism, parallelism something is added. In other forms of parallelism, the same thing is said from a different angle. So you have all these various uh, forms of parallelism. And I think that's what we have here. Lead us not into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. I, I think that when we begin to really look at this verse, we're going to see that uh, that is the case. Uh, uh, we have um, what we might call parallelism here. So I, I've always taught the Lord's Prayer to be in six petitions. Uh, instead of seven, and that's the, the position of the Westminster Assembly, for example, in the Shorter Catechism. We have uh, uh, six petitions. It was John Calvin's position, many others' position. But again, this is not that big of a deal. I just want to give a reason uh, why we're looking at this. Now, a second thing in terms of housekeeping is we're probably, for the most part, as I look around in the room, my guess is everyone here is really familiar with verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, uh, because we're so familiar with that verse, we may have a, a, a tendency not to look at it as closely as we would if we were turning to, say, Nahum this morning and some verse from Nahum, maybe a verse we haven't meditated upon uh, or maybe have never even read before. Uh, we're going to have a tendency this morning to focus it on that. We're going to have a tendency this morning to analyze that a little more carefully uh, than we would uh, verse 13 in Matthew 6 because we know it so well. And I think because we know it so well and we've heard it so many times, maybe we have never analyzed it the way we would if it was a verse that was new to us. And uh, that's what I want to do this morning is look at this. And as we begin to look at this this way, uh, we're going to start to see there's a problem. I don't know if any, has anyone ever encountered a problem with verse 13? I say a problem. What are you talking about a problem? Well, there is, a, there is a, actually a couple of problems here. Um, because, you know, some of them might say, well, you know, Rick, now that you think about it, um, last week in my devotion time, I was reading James chapter 1. And in, in verse 13 of James chapter 1, um, it says something like this. Uh, when, some, when we're being tempted, let no one say that God's doing the tempting because God can't be tempted with evil, nor does uh, God tempt anyone with evil. You know that verse. And I never thought about it until now, but here in verse 13, we're saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So are we praying that uh, the Lord won't do something that he has promised he wouldn't do anyway? You follow the tension here? Um, and uh, as I was saying in my uh, prayer, pre-evangelism, what do I mean by pre-evangelism? I'm using a word that Francis Schaeffer made po very popular uh, uh, several decades ago. And uh, pre-evangelism is really uh, giving the nuts and bolts that are necessary to assemble the gospel. And in our culture, uh, people really are lacking a, a lot of the things that were taken for granted, say maybe in the 50s or 60s uh, in gospel 
presentations, yet we still oftentimes continue to present the gospel the same way. And there's a lot of things that are missing. And I'll give you an example. Let me flesh this out. Um, This tension that we're talking about here in verse 13 has significance for what we call apologetics. And probably most of us are familiar with apologetics, but if anyone here this morning is not, that's simply giving a defense uh, for the the Christian faith. Apologetics is the science of giving a defense for the Christian faith. It comes from the Greek word apologia. It's the word we get the English word apology from. from. Uh, it's not, we're not giving an apology for the Christian faith. We're giving a defense uh, for the Christian faith. Now, here's a likely scenario. If you're in the business of sharing your faith, if you're doing much of this, it's just, it's, you, you've already encountered this because it's going to happen where someone is going to say, oh, you're one of those guys that actually believes the Bible. You can't believe the Bible because the Bible has all kinds of contradictions in it. And you know, uh, that person might even be able to say, like, say verse 13, for instance. Um, here, Jesus is telling you to pray to the Father who you call God, Right? He's telling you to pray to, to the Father um, uh, not to tempt you. And yet J- James um, tells us that God can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. There's a contradiction. And they might even add, you know, looking at, uh, if you turn to Matthew 4 and verse 1, they might even say, well, don't you guys consider Jesus to be God? Now, what are we going to say to that? Well, of course, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? And you guys, when you have spirit with a capital S, that capital S means you're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, who you also consider to be God. You guys, uh, you guys say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are, are all one God, yet three persons. And, and I can't see for the life of me how that isn't three gods, but whatever. Um, this appears to be a contradiction. Couldn't you hear something like that being said? Um, If you're in the business of sharing your faith, you're going to encounter people that are going to say that. And what do we have in in chapter 4, verse 1 here? We have Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. If Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? You see the the tension here? And it's, it's a seeming contradiction. It's important that we qualify it with the word seeming or an apparent uh, or an on-the-surface contradiction. Now, what do we say to all of that? Well, um, if we look at verse 13, we have really one of the key words in verse 13 is the word temptation, isn't it? And um, if we passed out a blank sheet of paper... Uh, We might struggle to put a definition down for temptation, but I hardly think there's anyone in this room that doesn't know what temptation is. Uh, We know that temptation is that urging that you experience um, coming from outside, um, welling up within to try to motivate us to do something that's wrong, right? Um, we know that even from times, I mean, some of us grew up watching cartoons where a little angel jumped up on one shoulder and a little devil jumped up on the other shoulder. That really puts it into, doesn't it? Uh, where you've got this tension going on between the angel and the, and, and the devil uh, temptation. Uh, so uh, we might not be so good at articulating ourselves. If we had a blank sheet of paper in front of us, we might not be able to write it uh, real eloquently. But we do have a working understanding of what temptation is, don't we? And I think it's helpful for us to analyze this word a little bit. The English word temptation comes from the Latin word temptara. 
And the interesting thing about uh, Temtar, and I was thinking of Troy a lot this week when I was thinking this through. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, Temtara is um, it means to try the strength. Well, why would I be thinking of Troy? He was an en- he's an engineer, right? Troy's an engineer. And in engineering, uh, you are always concerned about the strength of things. Uh, having done some engineering, having some engineering background myself, I'm aware of that training. You know, there's a lot of physics involved where, uh, for example, uh, you have a chain uh, that's rated at 1,500 pounds. Uh, how do they put a 1,500-pound rating on a chain? Well, the chain is produced. Uh, all of these links are produced and they're put together and they're tried. Uh, They're put into uh, a system where uh, a certain amount of tension can be put on them. So the strength of the chain is tried over and over and over again until an average strength is determined. So if you have a chain that stands up quite well on the average of 2,000 pounds, then the manufacturer, if he or she is responsible, uh, will put perhaps a 1,500-pound capacity on the chain. So that the, the capacity of this chain well surpasses uh, what it has proved to be able to do uh, under stress while it is being tried. You have this idea of trying the strength of. But a second meaning of Temtara means to urge. Now you have these two meanings going on with Temtara. And if we bring it back to English... Okay, here we have this. Uh, we, we can, uh, we can um, uh, really look at this. We can summarize all this with two words. Test and urge. Or if you want, we could say test and tempt. Uh, but let's use test and urge. That way it's, it's more proper. We're not, you, we're not defining words by the words. We're defining the words with other words. Now, on Wednesday, we were looking at a documentary produced by Ligonier Ministries, which was a lot of fun. I think you agreed. It was, it was really a lot. It was something I was looking forward to doing, coming here and watch. I'd seen the doc- documentary before, but I always enjoy watching that. And what was really fun about watching it on Wednesday was watching it with some of you. And, and uh, I do, I do, and please, if you're not doing anything Wednesday, we're going to watch the last, probably third of it um, on Wednesday. So it won't be late. It should I don't think there's as much to go as we've already seen. But, um, but at any rate, in the introduction of this documentary, um, it is rightfully said that the seeds were already underway. They had already been planted for the Reformation before uh, Luther famously uh, posts his 95 thesis on the castle door in Wittenberg. And there are a number of players that have already been at play, and one of them is John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe goes into the history books as translating the Bible into English. And Steve Lawson, in the introduction of the documentary, uh, points out that um, uh, he was on to the right scent of translating uh, the Bible into English. But what we need to understand is, is that uh, Wycliffe is translating from the Latin into English. So what he is in essence doing, which is a great service to the people in in, in the English-speaking world, they have something. But the product that they have is is, is really, at the end of the day, a translation of a translation. It's not the best. And it's later down the road where they go back to the original languages. 
and they translate from the original languages. Now, I've raised your attention to this because right now we've gone to the Latin, haven't we? We've gone from temptation to temptara. But something that we need to do, and it's a real eye-opener in the New Testament, and actually the Old, for that matter, is when we go to the Greek. Uh, especially when we think of the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? I know I'm throwing some technical words out here this morning, but Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we, we have in antiquity this uh, Old Testament that was translated into Greek. And sometimes it's helpful to see which words uh, were chosen uh, by these translators uh, when they were translating the Old Testament. Now, where are we going with this? Well, the Greek word in verse 13 upon which we get temptation from is the word perosmos. Perosmos. And when we, when we survey perosmos, we get pretty much the same meaning uh, that we have with temptara and we have with temptation. Uh, it, it means to try the strength of, if you will. But what's really interesting is one of the lexical definitions of temptara is to try the fidelity of one. To try the fidelity. What is fidelity? You remember the, some of you won't remember, but one of the big buzzwords on stereo systems back in the day was the word high fidelity. <laughs> now, that probably was high fidelity. I mean, and they weren't real high fidelity. <laughs> if you listen to what, in fact, what a lot of people like about those old turntables and records and stuff is the nostalgia of hearing the needle go through the groove of the record, you know. Uh, you, don't get that with a, you don't get that with a CD. You don't get that with a, uh, or even a cassette tape or a, um, uh, never mind. But fidelity means faithfulness. We could say, try the faithfulness of. Now, perosmos is to try the faithfulness of. But it also means to entice, to urge, um, to tempt, if you will. Now, if we go to Matthew 4, our, um, our, um, our friend, our skeptical friend has taken us to Matthew 4 and he says, Here's a contradiction, a very clear contradiction. You say that Jesus is God and that the Holy Spirit is God and yet the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, let's, let's take a look at that. What's happening in verse 4, or in chapter 4, verse 1? Here we see Jesus. He is being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness not to be tempted by the Holy Spirit nor to be tempted by the Father, but to be tempted by the devil. That's the first thing I think I'd want to get across to my skeptic friend is like, wait a second now. God is not doing the tempting. God is doing the leading. Now, why is that so important? Well, there's two different definitions here that we're working with. Testing the strength of someone is entirely different than urging them to sin. There's a world of difference between these two things, isn't there? Uh, One is absolutely evil. There is no evil in the other one. In fact, we're going to see as we go a little bit later that there's a lot of positive good that comes from, from this. Now, about Jesus being tempted, we need to understand that Jesus is not only fully God, he's also fully human. And it is his humanity that is being put to the test here. And why is that so important? Because we have, a, we have some connections going on here with the Old Testament. 
And the connections are, first of all, Jesus is the new Israel, isn't he? Just as the original Israel, the old Israel, wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, if you will, uh, and they failed, didn't they? They failed miserably. Here comes Jesus as the new Israel, and he is going to fast, and he is going to spend time uh, in the wilderness where he is going to be tempted. That's the first connection we want to make. There's another connection we want to make, is that Jesus is also what we call the last Adam. Just as Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, he was tested The Lord permitted Adam to be tested. The Lord did not do the tempting. He did the testing. Uh, The evil one comes into the garden. He slithers into the garden, if you will. And he does the tempting, right? Here comes Jesus. And what's in view here is his humanity. In his human nature, he is able to be tempted. Now, uh, you know, there are some differences between the temptation of Jesus and uh, and our temptation. We have a remnant of sin in our hearts. Jesus does not. Uh, We always want to keep that in view here. But as soon as we explain this, we see there's no contradiction here at all. There's a seeming contradiction on the surface until we begin to understand this. Um, There's no contradiction there at all. And before we leave this subject... There's many places that we could go to, but take a look at John 6. I choose that because we have studied that not so long ago. John chapter 6. And if you look at John chapter 6, it's instructive along these, along these lines as well because there we see Jesus is with his disciples. He goes to uh, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There's a large crowd following him in verse 2 uh, because they are noticing the signs that he is doing. Verse 3, he goes up on the mountain. He sits down with his disciples. And in verse 5, he lifts up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now in verse 6, we're giving a rare glimpse into the purpose of why Jesus does this. And what is said there? Jesus said this to what? To test him. Guess what word's being used there? It's perazzo. Someone say perazzo. That sounds like that other word. Yeah, perosmos. They sound a lot alike, don't they? Perosmos, perazzo. What's going on there? Perosmos is the noun. Perazzo is the verb form of the noun. Now notice the translators are not translating it by temptation. They're translating it by test. This is one of the uses of the word, the range of meaning of this word. What is Jesus doing? Is he tempting them? Is he tempting Philip to sin against him? No, he's simply trying his faith. He's he's exercising. Uh, Philip's faith is what he is doing. Uh, And I I point this to your attention because this is one of the ways God works, uh, as we're going to see here in a couple minutes. you know, it, it, we could go through the Bible and we could find many other occurrences of this. You know, one famous one is uh, Genesis 22. What is the Lord doing with Abraham in Genesis 22? When he calls Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, up on the mountain and to sacrifice him there. What is he doing? He's testing him. Is he tempting him? No. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. But does God permit us to be tested? Absolutely. He's training us. 
Which brings to the second thing. This is the second contradiction, seeming contradiction that we have here. And we could say to our opponent, hey, <laughs> you want to talk about contradictions, you only know the half of it. Let me share with you another seeming on the surface contradiction that we have here uh, in verse 13. If we go back to Matthew 6, 13, there's another one. You're thinking about the, the, the first that you have brought to our attention, but here's maybe one you haven't even thought of. Jesus is calling on us. Jesus is telling us, he's charging us to pray that the Father would not lead us into temptation. Yet, James, if you want to go back to James again, and here it might be wise to keep your fingers in Matthew and turn back to James uh, chapter 1, which we read, and that was the reason we were reading it, the opening of our service this morning. Uh, go past Hebrews and you'll find uh, James. If you get to Peter, you've gone too far. Turn left. And James chapter 1, what does James tell us in verse 2? He says in verse 2, famously, we've heard this verse before, count it all joy, my brothers. Uh, there's a footnote in the SV that points to sisters as well. Uh, count it all joy, everyone, when you meet trials of various kind. Guess what words used as trials? Say, it's probably that word you've been saying, uh, para something, right? Perasmus. That's the word. Trials. Um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, why would we want to count that joy? Well, verse 3. For you know that the testing, see, it's, it's, it's referred to as testing. In God's hands, it's always testing. In the evil one's hands, it's always testing tempting. There's a big difference. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now here we see there is a very positive blessing and benefit from undergoing these uh, tests. Right? In fact, you look at verse 12, there's a blessing. There's a beatitude in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, with all of these blessings in view, um, why would Jesus want us to pray that God would never lead us into these things that could benefit us? You see the tension there? Do you see the, the issue that seems to be uh, on the surface? Well, it's about timing. Jesus promises us that in this life, we're going to have trouble, aren't we? You know, a couple of years ago at my grandfather's funeral, I, that was the verse that I used at his funeral. It was a verse that I used at his funeral because it's a verse that I often shared with him. Uh, especially when we were having troubles. I'd say, you know, Jesus has promised in this life we're going to have troubles of all kinds. Um, and we need to take the Lord's Prayer and the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer and it needs to stand under the scrutiny of that promise. We're not going to get out of all of this, are we? These trials are going to come into our lives. They are indeed going to come. And some of these trials are not easy. 
Some of these trials are trials that are so, they're so hard that right now if we think to ourselves, I can't even imagine what I would do if I found myself in that situation. And right now, uh, there's no reason for you to imagine what you would do if you found yourself in that situation because you're not in that situation. But if you're in Christ, be of good cheer because if God leads you into that situation, he will not leave you high and dry, but he will give you the grace that you need in that situation so you will have the grace that you need for that situation. It could be simply put this way, if I might, imit- if I might um, uh, quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon would say, every affliction comes with a bundle of grace. Every affliction comes with a bundle of grace. Now, what do we do with this seeming contradiction? Well, here's the thing. If, if, if we think this through with, the word, with persecution... You know, and you don't need to turn there, but Matthew eleven five, in, or in five eleven rather, Matthew chapter five verse eleven, in what we call the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces a blessing for those who are persecuted, doesn't he? Blessed are those when um, others revile you and persecute you and say nasty stuff about you on my, for my sake. Um, there's a blessing uh, for those who are persecuted. Yet when you turn to the Psalter. And I need not cite any verses. All you've got to do is start with Psalm number 3 and work your way through. And you're going to see everywhere in the Psalter, when the psalmist finds himself being persecuted, he is everywhere calling on the Lord to deliver him, isn't he? So this idea of deliverance and this idea of blessing, these two ideas are not incompatible. It's about timing. Should we be... You know, everything's going smooth and wonderful right now. Lord, I really wish you'd bring in a real good trial for me just to put my face down in the dirt, a real good one. Are we supposed to pray that way? Jesus isn't teaching us to pray that way. Man, be careful what you pray for. I I would caution you about praying that way. Some actually have done things like that. There's been church, in, in, in church history, there's been those who wanted to be martyred. They actually prayed for martyrdom to come to them. And some of them were martyred. They got what they asked for. But Jesus doesn't call us to pray that way. He prays, listen, pray this way. Lead us not into temptation. And I think this is where the second part of it comes in, that we have parallelism here. Because the second part is what? But deliver us from evil. And we we mustn't think that the answer to this prayer is going to be we're never going to have any temptation. Because I can tell you right now, if, if the Lord is really speaking to you right now through this message, you will probably be tempted before you leave the grounds here today. Why do I say that? Because of the spiritual principle, when is Jesus taken out into the desert to be tempted? It's right after his baptism. And there's a principle right there, and it's very often the case, and those of you who have walked with Jesus will know this. You'll know this. You know, Benji, bring it up, Rick. I, yeah. Um, anytime you find yourself in a spiritual high, in a spiritual mountaintop moment with the Lord, if you will, be aware. Because generally speaking, immediately following that is going to be some kind of test. Some kind of temptation. Some kind of trial. It's almost inevitable. Why God is exercising us. Now, Jesus in teaching us to pray, what is he doing? He's teaching us to pray, Lord, lead us not into a temptation that we are not going to be able to handle. 
Lead me not into a temptation that is going to overcome me and cause me to sin against you. But sometimes we fail, don't we? And even when we're in the midst of the trial, you see, when we're in the midst of the trial, this is about timing. When we're in the midst of the trial, it is no contradiction for James to come along or for Jesus to come along. When you find yourself being persecuted, it's no contradiction for Jesus to come along and say, listen, there's a blessing in this. Hang in there. There's a blessing in this. Or when you're in the midst of the trial, we're calling on the Lord. Lord, do not give me more than I can handle. Lord, do not, call, do not lead me into temptation that I cannot, that I would fail at. But when we find ourselves in that temptation, which may be 10 minutes from now, we're praying, Lord, deliver me from evil. And it is no contradiction for James to come alongside of us when we're in the midst of that temptation and say, listen, there's, 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 there, there's another way of looking at what you're going through. There's a real blessing in this. Count it all joy because you're being exercised. Your faith is going to be strengthened. It's going to produce steadfastness. And steadfastness is going to produce this perseverance. And this perseverance is going to produce perfection. And the Lord is very lovingly exercising you. So you see, that's how pre-evangelism can actually start to work into full-fledged evangelism as you're explaining this to somebody. Um, now, in, in conclusion, the sixth petition uh, is forward-looking. If you go back to Matthew chapter f- uh, 6 and verse 13, you see it's forward-looking. Lead us not into temptation. The temptation is not here yet, but it's coming. So deliver us uh, from evil. Deliver us from future onslaughts of temptation. Uh, we're not necessarily praying not to be tempted, but... We're praying that we won't fail when we are. Does that make sense? We're going to be tempted. Um, We have to take verse 13 and place it under the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. Um, And uh, when we find ourselves tempted, God is not tempting us. Let no one say that God is tempting you. God is testing us. He's testing us. God cannot be tempted. Uh, There's a purpose for the trial. I have a couple of benefits here in my notes. Um, when we find ourselves being tempted, and if it's within the next 20 minutes, let us remember that this is going to give us a renewed sense of dependence upon God. When things are going well, that's when we have the most, uh, probably the greatest temptation to walk in self-sufficiency, isn't it? Oh, I got this. This is going great. I got this, Lord. Oh, really? Do you now? <laughs> that's, that's not... When we start thinking, I got this, trouble, trouble, trouble is coming. Uh, the temptation is powerful and it's strong. Uh, the evil one is far more powerful than we are or ever, you know, we're ever going to be in this lifetime. Uh, it's powerful. Let that remind us. Let that renew our sense of our dependence upon God. Also, let it uh, renew a sense of weakness. We are very weak and we are very frail, aren't we? We're very weak and we're very, very frail. And let thirdly, there's more benefits that could be done, but three, thir- three is enough for this morning. Think about purification. As we're being uh, tempted, we're being purified. It's teaching us to hate sin. It's teaching us to hate it. Now, someone will say, well, that sounds wonderful, Rick, providing that you make it, providing that you stand up under it. What happens when I fail, which is so much of the time? Well, there's benefits in that too. Say what? There's benefits in failure. 
Just so no one misunderstands me, I'm going to say it again. There are benefits in failure. There's a lot of benefits in failure. Someone will say, what benefits? Well, a new perception of God's grace would be one benefit. A new perception. How would we perceive God's grace if we always succeeded? It's in the midst of failure where we often see God's grace. Lord, you really want something to do with me now after that? Yeah, actually, you don't think I knew that was coming? He knows everything that's coming in our lives. He knows everything that we're going to do in our lives. Does he any, love us any less on account of it? No, absolutely not. Um, no, no. Um, so it's a re- new perception of God's grace and a reminder of the need for further sanctification. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived. Let us always remember in this life, we are, we're not there yet. Uh, We're always in need of further sanctification. In other words, we're always in need of being made more and more in Christ-likeness. I've heard people talk about graduating from church. What a... Graduate... I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people say graduate from church. How arrogant. So you've arrived. You don't need grace no more. Really? Failure reminds us that we need to be here. Failure reminds us that we need these, we need this over and over and over again. Thirdly, it's humility. Humility. We're really not real humble, are we? I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. Um, we're just not real humble. And the last one may be the one that sticks with you the most. And I think, I've saved, I like to save the best for last. And it's important that we understand this when we fail. If you're in Christ and you have failed and you're saying, how could I do this? I know better. I'm sinning against the God who's loved me, who has sent Christ to die in my place. What we need to know then and there is this. God is not throwing you away. He is not dispensing with you. He's testing you. And there are benefits even when we fail. He's not throwing you away. That that, that can be sometimes the hardest thing for us because we think I would throw me away. I'd have thrown me away a long time ago. And we think about our patience towards another. That's why my pastoral prayer. We need to remember these things because we need a lot of patience towards others right now, don't we? You can't hardly talk about any subject today without getting in a fight. No one wants to learn. They just want to communicate what they think they've already arrived at. And we need a lot of patience to reach this culture. We're going to need more and more patience as we go along in this. But where is this patience going to come from? This patience is going to come from Looking and drinking from the patience that God has extended to us. We would have thrown us away a long time ago, wouldn't we? Is there anybody here this morning who wouldn't have thrown you away a long time ago? I'd have thrown me away. Um, God is not throwing us away. Conclusion. 
Jesus paid it all. You mean, yeah, I do. You paid it all. That's how God can be so patient with us. That's how God can be so long-suffering with us. That's how God can even have communion with us is because Jesus has taken this all away. And even in failure, even when we see it's really probably the best lessons are probably learned in failure. Why does God permit us to fail over and over again? God, why'd you let me fail again? Because there's a lot of lessons in it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Father. It's your great God, suffering, long-suffering God, God who's patient with us. You teach us things, Father. You, you permit people to mock your word and to say all these things about your word. And, uh, these things are said in ignorance and gross ignorance of your word. Yet you are patient. You've been patient with us as we have said things we ought not to say. Father, teach us to be loving and patient with others who say things that ought not to be said. Well, Father, as we look at Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation. Oh, Father, we pray that you'll give us a new perspective on that petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, oh, Father, from evil. Whether we take it to be evil, the evil one or evil, Father, I don't think makes a lot of difference. Father, we desire not to fall, but even when we fall, Father, we know that you're there with us. And we know that there are great benefits towards making us and preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth right there in our failure. Oh, Father, we thank you, oh, Lord. We thank you and praise you, oh, Father, for um, your grace and your kindness, oh, Lord. Teach us of our need, oh, Father, to be in worship. Teach us of our need, oh, Father. Uh, constant need of being made more and more like Christ Jesus. May we never say we've graduated uh, from this, O oh Lord. Uh, we need this so desperately, O oh Father. O oh Lord, forgive us and make us humble. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand as we sing our concluding song this morning. the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are I will hold fast to the anchor, it will never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night